Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Hello everybody, my name is Louise Greenwood, I'm Director of Education and Training for Wessex LMCs and today I'm talking to Gary Hepburn who is from Sirius Business Services Limited and welcome Gary, nice to see you. Hello. Um, so we've worked a lot with each other, you've done a lot of training and I know you do a lot of work with um, GP practices and you've come across something that you think would be useful for, to draw attention to our practice managers with, which is about fire assessments in GP practices and you've come across something particularly in the last year that you think is um, just worth us um, talking about. Yeah, absolutely. As we've been going around doing fire risk assessments, we find in particular we are concerned about evacuation uh, from those GP practices that have got more than just the ground floor. So if they've got a first, second, third floor and the stairs are obviously involved in the evacuation. And it's about getting people out who are less abled or disabled. Uh, and traditionally, there's a couple of methods of doing it. There's uh, things like rescue maps that you see uh, in the the hospitals at the top of their stairs where people sit in a mat and they get slid down the stairs, or there are evacuation chairs. And it's the evacuation chairs in particular on the equipment front that are concerning us. Um, what we're finding is that uh, a lot of the practices we've been to say they've got an evacuation chair. And when we look at it, it's actually what I would call an ambulance carry chair. Uh, this means that basically it takes two people to physically lift the chair off the ground and carry people down the stairs. So there's obviously a risk in doing that, that people might stumble. There's obviously they need to be strong enough to lift people up. Whereas proper evacuation chairs are designed to bear the weight uh, on a, a track, usually a track, sort of a caterpillar track uh, type of mechanism and could actually be operated by one people, one person. So I think there's a, a misunderstanding about the type of equipment. We're also finding that when equipment's in place that people are not trained in its use. Now, of course, it's very important when you provide equipment for health and safety purposes that people know how to use it so they're trained and they practice it because, of course, this equipment will be used when there could be a fire raging in the building and smoke and, you know, people rushing out and what have you. So you need to be confident to use it. So, um, so the two things, so you mentioned the um, the blanket or the mat, and I know we had a blanket in our practice and I, we never, to be honest, I don't even know if we got it out. I'm embarrassed to say, but we always said that's what we would use. So you're talking about a caterpillar tread now for an evacuation chair yeah, yeah. so is that a piece of equipment and then i suppose people need to get it out and practice using it rather than having it in the corner and say that is what we would always do. because i suppose that a lot of people wouldn't know how to use it and i does it need maintenance does it need does the caterpillar traction thing need oiling i mean is the sort of work that you need to do in how to use these yeah i mean it's the same as any other piece of work equipment first of all you need to have the right piece of equipment in the first place so you need an evacuation chair, not a carry chair. Uh, you then need to train people in its use. Uh, and those people need to practice its use as well. So they might do formal training every three years when somebody from outside comes in. But then each year or twice a year, they need to get the chair out, get somebody sat in it and see if they can get them out. Um, then we need to check that the chair is there. So nobody's pinched it or, you know, um, it's not damaged. And like you say, it needs to be maintained and checked. So it's the same as any other work piece of workplace equipment. Uh, and what we're finding is that, first of all, people haven't got the right right equipment. They're, they're, they're just viewing it as something that hangs on the wall and hopefully somebody will know how to use it. Uh, and I think there's a, a bit of a, you know, a bit of an issue here. And it's a common theme. Uh, it's not once or twice we found it. It's now 
commonplace that we find it. So are people um, thinking, well, maybe I'll get this person in the chair, maybe I'll get myself out, maybe actually the fire will come along and, and they're, you know, firemen know how to use this much more mm-hmm. than I do. Perhaps they'll have sort of, I don't know, some sort of winch hoist thing going on and, and they can get the person out better than I can because it might take me too long and I might, you know, so is there a little bit of... Um, the re- where does the responsibility lie for getting yeah. okay the- well that's a really good question and that does actually cover another theme really which is that people are under misconception that the fire brigade will come in and rescue people from your building the law basically states it's your responsibility as an employer to get every single person out of your building in the event of a fire and you cannot rely on the fire and rescue service as part of your evacuation plan now what happens in some buildings where they've got a stairwell at the end of uh, the, you know, the floors of the building, uh, they, they designate it as a refuge point. And then they will wheel people along to the refuge point in the expectation that they can either leave them there for the, the fire brigade to come in and rescue or stay with them for the fire brigade to come in and rescue. But of course, these refuge points are just a staging point. That's what they're designed for. So, you know, you could go to the end of the corridor, get to the refuge point, and then maybe another member of staff would join you there to help you get the disabled or less able person out. But it is quite clearly the responsibility of the employer to get everybody out of the building, including the disabled and less abled in the event of a fire. And of course, if you've got a lift in your building, and you've got somebody, uh, you know, with a walking stick or a walking frame or in a wheelchair who's gone up to the first floor for, for an appointment or to see somebody and the fire alarm's gone off. Unless that lift is designated as a fire lift, it can't be used in the event of a fire. And I would absolutely guarantee probably no lifts in GP practices are designated as fire lifts because, you know, they are very, very expensive and they're usually in multi-rise buildings. So actually, you know, you go off down to the stairwell and you've got to get people out. Yeah. So when you get there, you've got to have the right trained staff, the right equipment, and you've got to be able to get people out safely. So would it seriously be quite sensible when you're doing a fire drill to actually get one of the members of staff in this chair and actually yeah. try and move them out? Yeah. I mean, we, we suggest that, you know, the people do fire drills and, and GP practices have traditionally been done in the lunch break because, you know, we don't want to upset patients. Well, actually, you should be doing them when there's patients in the practice or at least one of them. Uh, a, a year and you should have two practices a year by law so that's important to note and yes you should try and evacuate people as if there were people in the practice who are less abled um, you know and do, let's face it you might have somebody that shuffles along you might have a, a, a mum with a, a kid in a pram uh, and three or four other kids running uh, around you know loopy as they do and all of these things happen in real life and therefore you need to have your fire warden in place and trained uh, in equipment and in the process to know how to get everybody out safely. You said something that was really interesting to me, Gary. You said you should have fire, two fire drills a year. Yeah. So if you can send us the link where that is written down, that would be very helpful because often that these things say you have as many fire drills as you think is sensible or as you think or routinely or often yeah. and nobody ever knows but if you've got that written in black and white we would all yeah. love to see that because that yeah. would be really helpful thank you and yeah. we've got there's a lot about people with physical um, yeah. abilities, disabilities what about people who can't see very well who can't hear very well yeah, well equally you know we need to consider them as well because if they can't hear they might not hear a fire alarm if a fire alarm goes off Uh, And therefore, they're going to need to be warned in some way. And it has to be a foolproof way. It can't be, you know, that uh, 
you know, uh, member of staff B looks after member of staff A who's uh, got hearing difficulties because what happens if member of staff B is on leave that day that there's a fire? It needs to be a foolproof system to make sure that they are aware. And of course, if there's visual uh, impairment, then, you know, and, and there's panic and people trying to get out in a rush. Again, the people with visual impairment have to get out safely as well. Now, there's a nice piece of document that uh, you should have in place for anybody with disabilities or is less abled in the practice. It's called a PEEP, P-E-E-P, Personal Emergency Evacuation Plan. And there's a nice template that the government provide in a specific document that looks at fire risk in healthcare premises. And there's guidance in that document and a nice template that steps you through the process of what you need to consider and have in place. Okay, so that's helpful. So if it's as a member of staff, they would need a PEEP. Yeah. If it's a patient that comes in who's got um, problems with their, um, with their hearing, how would yeah. you practically suggest that the staff on the ground help them to find a safe way out? Well, of course, the difficulty with patients is, is we never know who's coming in the door and what disability uh, or less ableness they're going to come with. So we have to try and think of all different eventualities. Now, of course, if everybody's on a, a ground floor, simple building with a, you know, all, all on the level, it becomes much easier to get people out. The complexity comes when you've got lifts and stairs uh, and uh, in multiple floors. But you need to think it through. Now, you can use the PEEP process and you can uh, write something that I call a JEEP, a general emergency evacuation plan, where you think of those different people. So you could write a JEEP for somebody who's got visual impairment, somebody who's got hearing impairment, uh, somebody who's in a wheelchair, and you could work through that process and decide how you're going to accommodate that in the event of a fire. And I guess the important thing also is to make your receptionists aware when people come into the practice and they book in, that if they find that there's somebody in a wheelchair that's going up to the first floor or somebody with a visual impairment they just note that really so that if there is an emergency that uh, people are aware uh, and they can help and respond to that okay that's really helpful so we've um, how you get everybody out and we've established that actually two drills a year seems to be a sensible option who can do those drills because we're quite often asked well does it, does it, do I have the special qualifications to do it? Am I just being sensible? Is that enough? So who decides who can do a fire drill? Okay, the fire drills can be done by anybody. Obviously, usually a supervisor or manager within the practice. And actually, I would encourage them to be done in practice. There's no need to get an external company in or a consultant to do them. You're just basically going to decide that the following week, you're going to do an emergency evacuation. And I always suggest that you tell staff you're going to do it. Not necessarily we're going to do it Tuesday at nine o'clock, but sometime next week or on Tuesday next week, we're going to do a fire evacuation exercise. What? Tell them, I thought one of the point is it's a surprise and then people, so you just sort of learn more because you're not prepared. I mean, you can do it as a surprise, but I mean, I, I always suggest go, telling people in advance so they can think about in advance what they do, so they can prepare themselves because... You know, otherwise you start to get a bit of panic. So if you tell them that, you know, we're due to have a fire drill soon and it's probably going to be next week, they can start to think about how they would get out in the event of fire. If they're a fire warden, they can start to refresh themselves what their duties are and what areas of the building they should check. And then what I would suggest is that somebody, whether it's the practice manager or, or reception manager or one of the supervisors, is actually there with a watch. And when the alarm goes off, 
that they actually time how long it takes to get everybody out. And I mean everybody. The time you want to record is when the last person leaves the building. Now, if that's over a couple of minutes uh, in time to do that, then that, that would start to ring alarm bells and say you know, something of concern here because we should be looking to get people out within two, two and a half minutes maximum from every premises. That is very quick. It is, yeah. I mean, and, and the reason we say that is if you ever look uh, when we do fire training, we show videos of how fast fire develops and how much smoke is produced in the event of a fire. Two minutes, two and a half minutes in the event of a fire is a long, long time. Um, you know, all of our fire alarms are, are at home, our smoke detectors are all designed to give us early warning and get out. That's what it's all about. Okay, so you you do it, you time it, and then yeah. if you feel it's sort of four or five minutes... Yeah, you, you look to see it. how you can improve it. You look, why did it take so long? Is it because we haven't got enough fire wardens? Is it because uh, somebody was in the middle of something and they didn't respond immediately? They, they didn't take the practice uh, uh, seriously? Uh, and, and you address those matters. Um, so the yeah. fire warden role, that sounds pretty important and pretty significant. Yeah. And does that yeah. need special training? Does that need special training? Yes, it does. Yeah, it, absolutely. The fire warden role is actually defined in legislation. As it's not called a fire warden, but it says people to assist in the event of an emergency, effectively. And it does require special training. It does require people to understand what their role is, both in the event of an emergency and at other times, because your fire wardens aren't just there for an emergency. They are the people that should be walking around the practice checking that uh, fire doors aren't propped open, checking that extinguishers are still on the bracket on the wall where they should be, uh, checking emergency exits aren't blocked, you know, somebody hasn't parked outside an emergency exit. So they should be doing that sort of uh, regularly day in, day out. But of course, in the event of a fire, then they really come into their own as important to get people out safely and to check the building to make sure nobody's left in the building. And one of the problems with general practice is that a lot of people work part time or they work full time, but they happen to be doing yeah. it there you know, in a particular building for a small part of, of a particular day. So yeah. you, do you always have to have a fire warden on the premises when the when the surgery is open? OK, so all the times that the surgery is in operation, there needs to be suitable numbers of trained people to evacuate people from the building. So yes, you do need fire wardens for the entirety of the use of the building. So if you've got extended hours and you might have, you know, one or two GPs or a nurse working from early in the morning with one receptionist and the same into the evening, then things like fire wardens, first aiders, they all need to be provided for the entirety of the time we're working. Uh, so you need suitable numbers. You need to think about people being off sick, people being on holiday, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And again, that's really helpful to clarify that, Gary. So we'll put that also as a link with this podcast so people can actually see it in black and white, um, which would be helpful. Um, what about ringing the fire bell to make sure it's working and getting, and just so people recognise what it's yeah. How often? Yeah, so basically you should uh, uh, use your fire alarm once a week. Uh, you should set it off once a week. Uh, it can be at a set time. Lots of people do it at nine o'clock on a Monday morning or one o'clock on a Monday lunchtime. And you, if you've got call points, those break glass units, the idea is that you set the alarm off from a different one each week, because what you're then doing is you're checking the call points. Uh, and most importantly, you're checking that people can hear the fire alarm. Um, that, that's the key thing in the event of fire. Now, if you're a small building, 
You don't necessarily need a fire alarm. You might have an air horn or you might have a whistle or you might even have somebody shouting fire. That's all acceptable as long as it can be heard throughout the building and people understand what it is. Um, you know, it's just a means of raising the alarm uh, and people understanding what it means and can hear it throughout the building. That's really helpful. Um, thank you, Gary. You're so practical in the advice you give us. And that's because you work with GP practices all the time. And we really like that. Um, you never say to say, oh, no, you all have to get us a specialist to do all of this. Um, and a lot of it is the responsibility of the practice um, to make sure it's the right person doing it. And they will decide whether it is a specialist they buy in or whether it's one of the team. But it's, uh, it's the responsibility where that lies, isn't it? Um, yeah, and I think the important thing is that health and safety is not complex. I mean, lots of people think it's complex and they think they have to get an expensive consultant in to do it. When the legislation is written, it's always written expecting that the employer and the employer's staff and managers will be doing this themselves. Because if you do it yourself, then you understand it, you've got ownership of it. If you get somebody in to write an expensive document or a complex procedure, it tends to go on the shelf and stay on the shelf. And that's not what it's about. It's about living and breathing health and safety, the same as finance, the same as, you know, key performance indicators and prescription budgets and all the other wonderful things that uh, we have to do in, in general practice. That's helpful. Um, yeah, and you do, yeah, you just make it less complicated for us, which is always, you know, exactly what we need. So thank you so much for your time, Gary. We will um, come back and have another conversation about various different things that are changing in the, in the world of health and safety and to keep our practices and our, and our patients and our staff safe. Um, and as I say, we'll put this podcast out with some links to the um, things that the peeps and the Jeep and the other documents that um, Gary has mentioned. Um, so we hope you found that helpful. And um, thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure. And um, we will see you again soon. Thank you very much. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.